This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with school capital projects being deferred and delayed in Vancouver and other school districts as well. School boards speaking out this morning about these projects that they hoped and thought were going forward, but now have been put on hold. The BC Ministry of Education has put out a statement on this now, confirming they have deferred seven school capital projects due to, quote, the financial impacts of the pandemic and recent flooding events, unquote, uh, the ministry says they are prioritizing 11 other urgent school projects, but school districts that were hoping for their projects to go forward, not very happy this morning. Let's speak to Janet Fraser now, chair of the Vancouver School Board. Very pleased to welcome her. Janet, thank you very much for coming on today. And thank you, Mike, for the invitation. You bet. I'm taking a look at the letter that you have written to the ministry outlining your concerns here, especially about three schools in Vancouver that were scheduled for seismic upgrades. Is that right? Can you tell me about that? That's right. And you're right, Mike, with the introduction you made that we have had three projects that have been deferred, David Thompson Secondary, Killarney Secondary and False Creek Elementary. We had been working through the ministry progress, uh, the ministry process to get funding for these projects. And we learned uh, earlier this year that having gone through a lot of work and a lot of time and effort uh, in the district, that uh, these three projects have been pushed back to the starting line. What do you think of that? Did that take you by surprise? Um, this is not something we ever expected to happen, and I'm sure the school communities are disappointed. The board is disappointed. You can see that in the letter we've written to the minister. And um, we are waiting for a response, for, and we certainly hope that these projects can get on course again. Let me play a clip here for you from Premier John Horgan. He was asked about some of these projects and appeared to take them by surprise. Here's what he had to say. I'll get your thoughts. It's news to me. Um, I'd, I'd like to see uh, the correspondence. Uh, certainly did not come uh, from uh, the Treasury Board. Uh, we have no freeze in place. Uh, we have the largest capital budget in BC history, uh, which is focusing on building new schools, uh, seismically upgrading those that are at risk. Okay, so it's news to me, the Premier said yesterday. He says there's no freeze on capital spending in schools. I mean, does this feel like a, a freeze to you, Janet? Well, we haven't had any new funding for new schools, for expanded schools, or for seismic projects in three years. So that's what we're seeing on the ground. Yeah, what do you think about the fact that this is the same government that's uh, going ahead with a billion-dollar museum project at the time? At the same time, they're deferring pro school projects. What do you think of that? Well, obviously, the minister, the province has to make their own choices of their priorities. But we have fifty unsafe schools in our district, fifty seismically unsafe schools, and we have students who are not able to attend their catchment school because we need new schools or expanded schools. And, um, you know, we feel that we have a strong case for funding, and this is yeah. the message we're taking to the Minister of Education. All right, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. Okay, thank you. All right, Janet Fraser there, Chair of the Vancouver School Board. Let's check in now with Tracy Loeffler, Chair of the School Board in Mission, B.C., and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Tracy, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, Tracy, I know you've received a, a similar disappointment in your school district. Can you tell me about the high school project there in Mission? Uh, yes, we uh, were uh, advised uh, in October 2020 that we would be uh, receiving a, a replacement for our high school. Um, it was a um, campaign uh, promise, if you will. And uh, we received notice 
uh, in March that the project has been deferred and has to be resubmitted. Yeah. Can you tell me about this particular high school in Mission? Because I understand that it's uh, it's very crowded and, and pretty old school as well. It needs to be replaced, right? Yes, absolutely. So Mission Senior Secondary was built um, in the 1950s and has been uh, added on to piece by piece, uh, if you will. Um, so it's not conducive to, you know, a, a quality learning environment. Um, there are uh, HVAC concerns, um, and um, it's, it's not safe either as well. Like, it, it was built in the 50s, built in pieces, and uh, to our staff's credit, they've been able to maintain the building well, but it is uh, it is in need of replacement. Right. And what was your understanding about the commitment from government to replace this school? Did you guys actually get a, a promise here that, hey... Your new school is coming here. Was that the promise from government here? Yes. Yeah, Not, what, what? I wouldn't say from government. I would say from uh, the campaign party. From the NDP. Yes. Yeah. What What did they tell you? They They stood um, on the front lawn in front of uh, Mission Secondary School and promised us a replacement. Okay. It doesn't. That sounds like a pretty clear uh, commitment. So, what w- what went through your mind when you when you found out that the project was being p- put on hold? Uh, well, um, we were under the impression that uh, the promise or that this this commitment from the province was going to um, push our project up toward the top of the list, if you will. And hearing that it had been deferred, it just says it's deferred. We don't know how long that is. Is it a year? Is it 10 years? We don't know, but it's deferred. And so we, you know, we feel like we're further behind on this project now than we were two years ago. Yeah. What are you hearing from parents and and kids at that school? I mean, there must be a lot of disappointment here. Uh, Yeah, the community uh, is is, uh, quite disturbed and upset to hear that this has been deferred. This has been an ongoing issue in our community for years. We have been advocating for this for years. Um, and so, yeah, the community is, is very upset. The, the students need a, a, a better learning environment. Yeah. It's not conducive to the redesigned curriculum and the educated citizens that we're trying to, um, you know, set out into the world. Speaking and of trade. The, yeah. cap- the capacity issue as well. Like, it's over capacity, and we don't have other places in the district to put those students. So it's already, it's over capacity, so we've asked for a replacement and an addition. Speaking of Tracy Loeffler, chair of the Mission School Board, about the deferred new high school there in Mission. Premier John Horgan was also asked about this yesterday. Tracy, let me play what he had to say here and get your thoughts. So here is Horgan speaking yesterday. There are challenges in the economy. I'm not suggesting there, there are not, but there are no directives from government uh, that would constrain uh, building the schools that are needed in Souk or Mission or anywhere else. Okay, so he says there there's no directives from government to constrain building these schools. Does that add up with what you've been told from the ministry? Um, yes, I would say I would say that yes, that is true. There there has not been a directive of a two year freeze. Uh, we believe that this deferral will probably delay our project by at least two years. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a freeze; it's a deferral. Yes. Okay. Okay. So yeah. two more years of kids crammed into that school. Like you mentioned that it's overcrowded. I read that it's like at 109% capacity. Like there are too many kids in that school it was designed for. Is that right? Uh, yes. Yeah. It, it is way over capacity. And actually the majority of our schools uh, in this district are over capacity because we're growing at a rate, I think, of 3.8% per year, which is double the provincial average. Do you, th- do you think the government should prioritize your project there, get that new high school built like you were promised before they build a, a new museum for a billion dollars? Well, <laughs> the museum. Um, you know, I think that everyone has uh, their different priorities, but I'm here today to advocate for my community, our school. Yeah. Our students need need a new high school, and we would like it sooner than later. Okay, well, I think you're doing a good job standing up for the people in your, in your uh, school district. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate that. Thank you, Mike.
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's check out uh, Metro Vancouver gas prices right now. Oh, no, another new record high. Gas prices soaring over $2.35 a liter, as high as two thirty-seven on Sunday and into yesterday as well. The highest prices ever. So we're breaking the record yet again. Highest gas prices ever in Vancouver. Of course, we already have the highest gas prices in Canada. We've got the highest gas prices on the continent. And here we go again with gas prices soaring again. What can we do to give people some relief? Well, the BC Green Party has an idea. They say make transit free. Forget about fares. Just make it free. Make transit free. That would help people during these sky-high gas prices. Got Green Party MLA Adam Olson standing by. First, have a listen to this from Dave Amos, very popular YouTube channel. He's a professor of city planning, and here's he, here he is making the case for free transit. The biggest reason to make transit free is a philosophical one. We've decided that essential services like police, fire, roads, highways, and bridges are all free. And the sense that we pay for them in taxes and we use them for free as much as we like. If we think mobility is something worth paying for in taxes, we should include transit to ensure everyone can move through our cities, regardless of car ownership or not. Okay, so, and some other cities have moved ahead with free transit. Should Vancouver do it too? Should British Columbia do it? Let's check in with Adam Olson now, Green Party MLA, Sandwich North in the Islands. Pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Adam. Pleased to be here with you, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. Thank- Thanks a lot for coming on. So can you make the case here for free transit? I think Mr. Amos uh, highlights an important aspect, I think, overall with respect to uh, accessing um, accessing transit. We know that uh, ridership has not uh, bounced back following uh, COVID-19 like they had hoped it to be. Uh, now with the increasing cost of fuel, um, the provincial government has given a, a rebate through ICBC for drivers. Uh, so some British Columbians are going to get some amount, not a lot, but some amount of, of relief uh, for the uh, increased cost of fuel. Uh, and the proposal that we put on the table was to say throughout these um, summer months, um, why not uh, subsidize the cost of people uh, accessing the transit service? It will um, hopefully attract people and, and they can see the convenient um, uh, transit services that are in our communities. And uh, and recognize how uh, you know taking transit will help them with their commute, and as well help them reduce the costs of transportation in their uh, in their daily lives. So you would say free transit during the summer, or permanently, or temporarily? Well, we, uh, well what we proposed when when the when the BC NDP announced that they were going to give a small rebate through ICBC to drivers, we said, look, this is. This does not uh, address uh, the transportation costs of all British Columbians. And so one of the ways that we can make uh, this uh, more universal, more equitable um, uh, for all British Columbians, people who um, drive or people who use transit and are facing increasing costs uh, of living, not just in fuel, but food, uh, increasing costs of living in housing, and uh, and energy costs uh, that uh, that uh, one of the things that the provincial government should look at and what we've been advocating for is to, at the very least, while we're uh, dealing with the increased uh, cost of fuel throughout the summer, um, make it a, a, a time limited uh, program. But you know, I think that uh, uh, that getting people on transit's a good a good um, option, and uh, the provincial government should have made it a more equitable approach. Okay, so would this be free transit? Just in Metro Vancouver, like on the TransLink system, or do you see it sort of province-wide? Well, I, I don't think that we would want to limit it. If, if there's a transit service in your community uh, and, um, you know, we're looking to attract people uh, on to, to taking those transits, to shifting their modes of transportation as much as possible, this is an opportunity to introduce transit to some people. Uh, I think a, a, a lot of people look at uh, transit services and, and, and think that they're, you know, um, they don't get to be where they want to be at the moment that they want to be there. And so they decide not to take transit. I think this is an opportunity to say one of those barriers, one of the obstacles to taking transit is going to be cost. Um, why not make it free and, and start to introduce people to the transit services that we have in all of the communities across the province? 
Okay, so speaking of cost, if you made transit free, obviously you're sacrificing all that revenue, transit fare revenue, to these transit agencies. So how much would this cost? Well, I think that's uh, something that certainly the provincial government has to look at. We know that everywhere uh, in the world that has um, increased the ridership of of uh, uh, of their citizens, they've made those investments. They've recognized that those investments at the front end, uh, whether it be um, using something like this, where you attract people onto the services by uh, lowering the rates or removing the, the cost uh, to people, uh, but also um, robust transit services um, get there by making those investments at the front end of it. So increasing I- the convenience, increasing the reliability, making sure that people know that when they uh, when, when they want to get to where they want to be, that the transit is a reliable service for them. And so those investments always go in advance of ridership. Ridership is attracted to our transit services when people yeah. are convinced that it is reliable and convenient. But I guess but I'm, what I'm saying is how much would it cost? Like right now, you know, like I believe TransLink, it's like $60 million a month in, in fare revenue, right? So, like, if you made transit free throughout British Columbia, like, how much would it cost in foregone fare revenue? Mike, I don't have that number right in front of me. You don't know. You don't know how much it would... Adam, come on, man. You don't know how much this would cost? I don't have that number right in front of me. Oh, no. Like, don't you think, think, Adam, 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 let me ask you this, man. Like, don't you think what you're going to call for free transit for everyone, you should at least know how much it's going to cost? Fair comment, Mike. The reality of this is, the reality of this is, is that we are looking at uh, the provincial government spent $400 million on a rebate uh, to drivers. The call that we made was to say, look, British Columbians get their uh, transit, they, they access their transportation services in a variety of different ways. One of those is uh, through uh, personal vehicles and through transit. And so why not yeah. make it an equitable program for all British Columbians to say, look, consider for the summer making transit services available free of charge to British Columbians. They've made it for kids under 12. Extend that service yeah. to all British yeah. Columbians through the summer. Do you think there would be trouble? Let's say if they did this and they, and they made transit free in, in Vancouver and everywhere else, do you think it would cause any unforeseen problems? Like, I was just reading about in Tucson, Arizona, they went with free transit, and the bus drivers union there is calling, is pleading for the city to stop it, to please put the fares back on, because crime went up on the buses. So vandalism aboard buses there doubled after they brought in trans- fare-free, free transit, assaults on bus drivers and passengers tripled, tripled after they went with free transit. Uh, we already got a lot of, we had a crime problem in Vancouver. If you made transit free, do you think there'd be cr- more crime? Um, well, that's the first time that I've, that I've heard of that situation, Mike. What I think what we're doing is we are putting in front of British Columbia's government, the BCNEP government, an option to help people with their increasing cost of living. This government has consistently said that they are making life more affordable. We know that this summer is going to be incredibly challenging for British Columbians with respect to increasing costs of uh, living, food, fuel, transportation. They've put an option on the table for British Columbians uh, who drive to get a small rebate back. And what the BC Green Party offered uh, several weeks ago was a way for that program to be more equitable for people who don't have vehicles and, and who need to use transit to help with the increased cost of living. And so that's right. the suggestion that the BC Green Party put in front of the government. And, you know, I think that uh, it's one that in urban British Columbia, where, uh, you know, vast majority of the people live, this will help. You know, the city of Vancouver is an incredibly ex- expensive place to live. So is the city of Victoria and 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 Kelowna and, and other places that have transit services. This is a yeah. provincial service, and the provincial government could uh, support British Columbians who use uh, transit services. Clearly, if there's an increase in crime, then that you know we ha- we are uh, addressing that as well. So, um, but that's the first time that I'd heard that uh, that uh, inc- uh, you know access to uh, transit is increasing the um, the violence on those systems. Well, in, that one, in that one city, it, it did, according yeah. to the bus drivers' union. Adam Olson, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me.
All right, gas prices are record highs once again in British Columbia. Should transit be free to give people a break from gas prices? Let's go to your call, Steve in the West End. Hi, Steve. Hey, Mike. I like it, but I don't like it. Um, it's a situation where if we did have this system, I would say people from outside of British Columbia would have to pay more proportionally for transit fares, maybe, okay, uh, local citizens would not have to pay. Kind of like in Hawaii, they have a special ID that gives them a discount. But what I don't like about it, Mike, is that there's a lot of people in rural BC who don't have transit, and they would have to service these uh, increased taxes, which means their, you know, the cost uh-huh. of their living is going to go up with no benefit. So maybe we could try yeah, right. it for a few years and see how it goes and uh, test run it. Okay, thank you for that. No, I think you raise a good point that if you do not have access to free transit yourself, you'd be effectively subsidizing it for everybody else. But there's no free lunch, okay? This is going to cost a ton of money. I mean, the MLA there didn't know how much it would cost. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Doug in Surrey. Mike, if they think they've got themselves a crime wave now, they haven't seen anything. I give across from the King George Skytrain. The next stop is Surrey Central, and it's like Flophouse Empire. They have a hub there for buses going everywhere. Those brand-new cars they got, the the seats are already cut up, and the graffiti artists are having a field day. They couldn't hire enough cops to maintain this thing. If somebody does something in Surrey Central, they hop on a bus, they hop on a train, it's giving a crime wave wheels. And where are they going to get the money to maintain it? they got to hire cops to maintain it, and they got to get people to fix what the uh, the freeloaders that push the turnstiles that Kevin Falcon dropped on us. They're as useless as a uh, screen door in a bathtub. Do you th- okay? Do you think if they made transit free, crime would go up even higher? Oh gracious! It's like giving them a free ride. They already are. But I've seen people. Uh, I lost count. The number of people two will be pushing through on one card, and they don't even think uh. twice about it. Yeah, see, this is. A th- thank you for that, because this was one of my immediate thoughts and concerns. Like, if you just said it's a free-for-all, you can ride SkyTrain buses, everything for free, would you have more crime on the system? They've already got a crime problem. And like I told Adam Olson, like, just Google Tucson, Arizona. Just in the last month, they've had a crime spike on their transit system after they went to totally free transit. Walter on Vancouver Island, hi. Hey, so I, I'm out in Central Saanich. Uh, Adam Olson's riding here. Um, like most people here, I uh, I work in the city. So to drive, it only takes me 20, 25 minutes. If I take the bus and I'm waiting for a transfer, 25 minutes can take me close to an hour and a half. So I think yeah. money improving the bus system, then I would take it. But even if it's free, my time is worth something. So I wouldn't need to pay me to take the bus. So you wouldn't take it if it even if it was free? No, it takes two hours every day. Okay, Walter, thank you for that. I mean, transit for a lot of people would not even be a, a workable option, even if it was free. But I suspect if it if it was free, though, you would have increased ridership. I mean, people people would use it. Peter in Surrey. Sorry about that. Just another left wing left wing lunatic idea. I mean, you know, everything's free, and everybody's worried about something else. Cars got something, so then this guy's got to get something, and now bus gets it, so this gets it. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. What happened to people working and paying their way and paying their share? Everything for free. You know what we should do? Give everybody fifty <laughs> grand and and make everything free in the world. Nobody has to pay for nothing anymore. That will solve the world's problems. You know what? Go to work, get a job. And do something instead of taking everything for free. It's just so yeah. ridiculous. Okay, Peter, thanks for the call. Well, it's people who are going to work and getting a job who end up paying the taxes that would pay for the free stuff. You know, I'm not opposed to having a reasonable discussion about w- ways to make the system better and help people, but, you know, let's take off the, uh, uh, the sunglasses here and just realize how much this is going to cost. It costs a ton. Breton on Van- in Vancouver. Hi. Hey, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Go ahead. All right, so yeah, this will cost a lot of money, but I think it's a cost we should pay. We have ridiculously expensive transit in this area. It's costing me $9 a day to bus from one side of the city to another where I got to work. That's, that's what it was paying me, uh, costing me in gas before gas got ridiculous. But here's how we could 
solve it. Uh, Lonsdale Key Market, the big transit hub, and it's a shopping center. We should be building a lot more places like that, mini mall uh, um, marketplaces around the SkyTrain stations, and then transit can collect rent from these different shops and use that to subsidize mm. the money for the uh, for the transit. This was actually what we proposed at the Pro Vancouver when I ran for council. Other people are proposing mm. this. Other places have much cheaper transit than we do. Yeah, thank you, Breton, for that. I'm glad we got a call on the other side of it who supports the idea. And, like, you know, there are other cities that have done this. It's not like it's never been done before. Tim and Maple Ridge. Tim, you got 30 seconds here. Uh, yeah, I just think that with all the homeless that we have around, uh, it's just going to contribute to them uh, riding the buses for shelter. I think uh, having a small fee for uh, transit is something that needs to be done. I mean, uh, we can compensate it in ways possibly, but uh okay. you know better transit not uh not free transit we need a sky train up the center of the highway all the way out to hope and that'll help uh the cost of living as well as people Thank will you. Be able to live this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, let's talk about Canada's men's soccer team now and the player strike that we've seen unfold after the last few days. On Sunday, Canada cancelled a friendly match against Panama at BC Place Stadium just hours before the kickoff after the Canadian players refused to take to the pitch. They had been refusing to practice as well. It's a dispute over money and also over benefits for the players on the team. Uh, they're seeking more money uh, as part. To, they've just qualified for the World Cup. They're also looking for travel for family to Qatar to com- watch them in, uh, compete in the World Cup. There are other issues on the table. Good news here is that the players have resumed practicing, but uh, this one is not over. This was certainly disappointing for the fans, to say the least, who had purchased tickets to see uh, Canada's uh, men's soccer team play at BC Place on Sunday. Here's a listen to some of those uh, disappointed fans here. I just bought tickets 10 minutes ago. I think it's a joke. We got up early this morning and drove to Nanaimo from Port Alberni, took the ferry over here. It's the second embarrassment for Canada's World Cup qualifying team. This game was meant to be a make-good for the sold-out match against Iran that got cancelled because of politics. And you can only imagine what this does to build excitement for the World Cup. All right, let's discuss this now with my guest, John Iveson, columnist at the National Post. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. John, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Hey, John, I appreciate your time today. John, you posted on Twitter the other day after the Canadian players uh, refused to take to the field for that game that was canceled. You wrote, this is a disgrace. The only thing these guys should be thinking about is performing in the World Cup. They're playing for their country. They should be doing it for the pride of pulling on the jersey. John, you got a lot of attention there to your tweet. Why do you feel that uh, that strongly about it? Yeah, well, I should clarify. I'm a political journalist, but in this case, I'm writing as a soccer fan. And, um, you know, I think international soccer is something different from uh, the day-to-day competitive domestic leagues. The teams are involved in, and I'm not sure that's registered with a lot of people here. But um, you know, this, this is not their day job. This is not the day job of these guys. There's 24 players in the Canadian squad. 15 of them are playing in Europe. Uh, nine of them play in the MLS in North America. The average wage for the MLS player is $472,000. Alfonso Davis, the star player, gets paid 1.6 million to play for for Bayern Munich. So. Uh, you know, they don't earn their living playing international soccer. And, and in many countries, uh, they either don't get paid to play for the international team or they get paid a pittance. I mean, England, for example, they get something like $2,000 uh, wow. for each international game, which they then donate to charity. And, you know, some of these guys are, are, are on huge, huge salaries. 
so the so the money would be of no particular significance to them anyway. But it's about pride of playing for your country. You get chosen for your country and you play for it. You don't ask, I want better terms or I'm not going to show up. And I mean, it, yeah. it's it's al- it's almost unprecedented in, in male serious men's teams. Uh, Portugal in 1986 had a dispute, but it was more about conditions. They were in a hotel with cockroaches and they couldn't get proper training facilities and so on. This is a joke and it reflects really badly on Canada. Yeah, I know you've been a soccer fan for a long time. Do you recall anything similar to this? I mean, like you mentioned, there was that one dispute with one team complaining about hotel conditions, but like just a straight-up money dispute to say hours before the kickoff, we're not playing for our own country here? Yeah. Like, have you ever heard of that before? I mean, two hours before kickoff. Like, and, and you, yeah. know, you know, I had interviews with little kids who'd come a long way, and they were looking forward to seeing this great team, the team that's everybody's excited to see play in the World Cup against Belgium and Morocco and Croatia. Uh, they had uh, a fantastic qualifying uh, round where they came top of the top of the uh, the Concacaf. Yeah, I've never heard anything like it. I mean, it's it's um, no, you know, the, I'm not suggesting that Canada Soccer is the most well-run organisation out there because clearly, they, if they were, they wouldn't have arranged a game against Iran. And it turns out in 2018 they signed a 10-year deal with this uh, company, Canadian Soccer Business. Right, which you know clearly they didn't realize how good the team they had on their books was, and they didn't anticipate they were going to become quite so popular. So they presumably did not strike a very good deal. Uh, but you know the, the, the team members are now saying we need the terms disclosed and corrected. Well, the bottom line is when you sign a ten-year deal, you don't just unilaterally turn around and correct the terms of it. So it's a real mess. And uh, yeah, as far as <laughs> is it unprecedented? Yeah, it's just it, it does not look like Canada's a serious team that's united going into the World mm. Cup. All these guys should be thinking about is the World Cup. Yeah, the president of Canada Soccer, Nick Bontis, uh, said yesterday that, look, we can't accept demands from the players that would put our organization into an untenable financial position. And he appears to be referring to the deal that you just mentioned that they negotiated and signed in 2018, a 10-year deal with a with a partner company and like you said i mean back in 2018 canada's men's soccer team weren't they still terrible back then they were ranked like 98th in the world or something and they they just yeah, went I mean, from yeah go ahead I mean, you look at the the where the, the uh, age profile of this team is very young so you know four years ago they were not considered a real contender so you know right. they've done incredibly well but um now they're just in my opinion they're undermining their own chances of of success, you know, we'll, we'll we'll wait and see because they do have two games coming up, which are which are not friendly games. The, the games against Iran and Panama were just uh, exhibition games. The right. games there's a game on the ninth and there's a game on the thirteenth. These are competitive games in the Concacaf Nations League. Curacoa, uh, you know, there's a nation, but there is apparently a, uh, a a nation near Aruba, an island, and then mm. they play Honduras on the thirteenth. Um, you know, if they play both of those games competitively and win, then maybe Canada's back on track. But right now, you know, the Qatar is is coming up soon. It's uh, it's in the uh, late fall, early winter, and this is a real setback because this, the, uh. you know, the repercussions of these things. It's not just done and dusted. This thing will linger and it will create bad blood, and it does nothing for the, the performance on the on the field. I would imagine. Okay, hopefully these the games you just mentioned will go forward. The good news here is the players have resumed training at UBC, and presumably these they're going to get ready to play these other games. I'm taking a look at some of their demands, John, for your thoughts. Uh, the players say they want a larger share of the World Cup prize money. They also want a friends and family travel package to Qatar so family members and friends can co- travel to Qatar, watch them compete. And they also are seeking equal pay for Canada's men's and women's national soccer teams. Do you think these are reasonable demands? Well, you know, a pony in every home would also probably fit in nicely there. You know, you can only hand out what Canada soccer has to has to hand out. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the pay equity thing is, a, is an interesting one. It's a very that's a completely separate issue. And there have been a lot of uh, there has been a lot of disquiet in, in women's soccer about not getting equal pay, and yeah. by and large, that is now getting resolved. Most most countries are now 
ensuring that whatever they pay for international performance or uh, appearance fees, they pay the same to the women, and that's that's only right. And it's you know it's pay equities the law everywhere else, so why not? Um, but as far as forty percent of World Cup qualification money, um, reviewing this existing deal, you know, I just think it's pie in the sky, and they probably are asking for for money that Canada soccer just doesn't have. Speaking of National Post columnist John Iveson about Canada's men's soccer team uh, refusing to practice and play on Sunday there at BC Place. Speaking of the women's side, let me play a clip here for you, John, for your thoughts. So this is Diana Matheson, who was a great player for Canada's women. And here she is talking about, you know, for her it was never about the prize money playing for Canada. Here's what she had to say. If we have it. Most of the players of my generation and before me for sure just played soccer. They represented Canada because they loved it. It's never because of the money or they would have quit ages ago. It was just because you love to play soccer, you loved being around the team, and you love to represent Canada. It was always such an honor for us. Yeah, so she said it's never, it was not about the money for the Canadian women. Um, you know, that said, I agree with you. There should be equal pay for the two sides. And, and I believe she's on the record as supporting equal pay for women as well. But, you know, she yeah. was saying, look, it's not about the money. It was about the pride of representing your country. But your thoughts? Right. I mean, th- th- these guys are, are, are on the verge of making history. Uh, all, they, yeah. all they have to do is, is score a goal in Qatar, and they've made history. Because in, in 86, when Canada qualified, uh, they went home after three games and hadn't scored a goal. So, you know, this is the best team that Canada has ever had in men's soccer. It's the best chance they're up against the best teams in the world. Belgium's the number one ranked team in the world. Morocco will be a tough team. Croatia is an extremely tough team. Um, but they could go toe-to-toe with these countries and give them a good game and maybe even win a game or two. And yet, you know, to be squabbling over money, I mean, even if you think about it in financial terms, for a couple of these guys to have a good World Cup, they're on the, they're on the world stage. You know, that's got to be worth money because at some point down the line, some of them will make more lucrative moves to bigger clubs on the on the back of having played well at the World Cup. So the idea that they're distracted about any of this stuff, it just seems absolutely crazy to me. John, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Mike. Let's discuss now with my guest, Isabel McKenzie, British Columbia's independent advocate for seniors. I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Isabel McKenzie, thank you for coming on this morning. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning to you. So when we think back to a year ago this month, the deadly heat wave started in B.C. around June 26th or so, lasted several deadly days. So we're coming up to the one-year anniversary of this event. When you look back at that now, what sticks out in, in your mind and, and the major lessons learned there? Well, I think the, the thing that sticks out in my mind the most is... Uh, we just didn't understand the impact of heat at those levels because we'd never experienced them before. We had the warnings, but we didn't really comprehend um, the, the seriousness of it and the moving from I'm uncomfortable in the heat to it's deadly, uh, particularly for uh, a subset of seniors. And that's why we saw uh, the tragic outcomes that we saw in, over that four-day uh, period of time last uh, the end of June, beginning of July. And I think the other thing that stuck out is knowing that uh, we realize that and and looking at who it is that that died, we realize that what we really need is a plan to cool down the ambient temperature of the room the person is in. So the heat outside didn't kill people. It was the heat inside. And it didn't kill everybody and it wasn't fatal for everybody. It targeted a specific group of people, mostly seniors or younger people with these significant uh, health issues, these comorbidities that we call them. And we knew who those people were, and we'd had, in fact, we'd been in contact with most of them. Uh, so they knew there was a heat wave, and we were telling them to put cold compresses on their wrists, and they were telling us they were fine, and then you know, a few hours later or the next day they were dead. What we needed to do was remove that person, evacuate them from that overheated room, and take them to a place for a period of time uh, where the temperature was appropriate until their home environment was at a safe temperature. That was one, that's one way to deal with it. The other way to deal with it is take 
ventilation to the person and it has to be mechanical yeah. ventilation. So the fans in the windows aren't doing it. It has to be air conditioning is the what we would refer to it in, in common terms, but mechanical ventilation. So some people, it would have worked to get an air conditioning to them to bring down the temperature of that room. It, we focused on bringing down the temperature of the person that wasn't effective in these cases. We needed to bring down the temperature of the room. So, And if we couldn't do that, we needed to remove that person from that room. Are you satisfied to date with the response? We saw the government yesterday announce a new BC heat alert response system, which will include warnings to the public over the emergency cell phone system. So people would get an alert on their cell phone in the event of an extreme heat emergency. Do you think that is a positive step forward? And could it prevent these type of deaths, do you think? Or do we need to do more? I think it's a positive step forward, and they also combined that with a change to the BC Ambulance uh, staffing model so that they're going to uh, preemptively or prophylactically uh, uh, get more staff on board in anticipation of these extreme heat emergencies, and I think that's a good thing. I think that when we're looking at the deaths of these seniors, uh, we need more than that. Uh, we, we, those things are good and they're necessary, but we need this plan. How are we going to get that person in that overheated room house uh, either out of there or bring the temperature in that room down? And that's not in the plan yet. Um, you know, we, we, one of the interesting things is we knew who these people were. The, you know, the idea that this was somebody nobody had had any contact with and we found them Many days later, that wasn't what happened. Most of these people had been uh, home and community care, had either been in contact with them, been in the home. Uh, they've been in contact with their family. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a very subtle thing that's happening here, and people aren't realizing that they're being overcome by the heat. In part, Mike, because you and I might not suffer the same outcome in a room of the same temperature. So I think... You know, we have to remember that this isn't for everybody, but this, this vulnerable population, mostly seniors, uh, we have to have a specific plan. Speaking to Isabel McKenzie, British Columbia's advocate for seniors, the BC Coroner's Service today has released a report into the heat-related deaths in British Columbia last year, identifying 619 deaths as heat-related from the heat event last year. And as you pointed out, pointing out that more than a large majority of them were seniors. So 67% of the people who died were 70 years old or older. There are recommendations in this report as well, including identifying the people who are most at risk of death during these heat emergencies. So you've already touched on that a bit. Like, So you're saying that we need to know where people are, who's most at risk, and in the event of another emergency like this, get them help, correct? That's correct. And we need to understand what the help is, Mike. It's not the phoning up and saying, are you okay? And, you know, remember to, to close the curtains in the heat of the day. Uh, we did all that. Uh, what we need is the plan uh, around the ventilation, getting them air conditioners. And the coroner's uh, review does reference that. Uh, not for this summer, but but potentially for next summer. And then in the event that we, the for whatever reason, the air conditioners won't work, number one, you can't, there's some buildings where the power grid isn't going to allow you to put an air conditioner in everybody's unit. Um, you're going to have to have a plan for evacuating those people. Now, if we fast forward 15 or 20 years from now, uh, you know, embedded in the coroner's um, review is basically the message, we need to plan for this for the future and New buildings will, will have air cooling systems in them and existing buildings can convert over time. We may not need to have a big evacuation plan, but until we get to that point, there are going to be people living in apartment buildings um, where it is simply the heat is overwhelming. We can't cool it down. We have to have a plan for evacuating that person the way we would if there's a flood or a fire because it's just as dangerous for that person. Not necessarily for everybody in the building, because everybody may not be uh, elderly. But if you're elderly and you're, uh, the room temperature is, is 
at a certain point, it is deadly for you. Yeah, as you mentioned, people were dying not from the heat outside necessarily, but people were dying indoors. 98% of the deaths occurred indoors during the heat emergency last year, according to this coroner's report today. And you also touched on the fact that for seniors who are living in long-term care homes, many of them have have air conditioning systems. Some of the older homes need to be upgraded for sure. But the biggest risk here, right, is seniors living in the community. And like you mentioned, seniors are living in apartments or, you know, mobile homes, modular homes. And they're often people living alone, right, who can't help themselves, would you say? Yes, I think that's where the focus is. We didn't, uh, while there are some care homes that need upgrade to their uh, to their systems, and while it was challenging for some of them, they managed uh, during uh, the heat emergency. And so if you're looking at prioritization, uh, the, the higher priority, just looking at the evidence at who died and where, the higher priority is the seniors living in the community. How are we going to get them the air conditioning or get them to a place that is air conditioned? Um, and we need to know who they are. We have systems in place to do that. Um, and then the next piece is, okay, we've identified you. Now, how are we going to manage this? And, and also in the background, Mike, is, this, is like every evacuation order, um, it, uh, you will find people who do not want to evacuate. Um, right. And they're in, obviously they will have that right. But I think a lot of people, now that they understand uh, the deadliness of this heat, where, you know, if you tried it the first time, they might have said no. Uh, now that they understand what can happen, I think you'll find more people prepared to do it. Do you believe that the ambulance service has been fixed adequately here to deal with another emergency like this? Like you mentioned, the government yesterday announced some changes to ambulance staffing, which there has been long, there's been calls for that to happen. The government yesterday said that they've added 125 new full time paramedic positions, 22 ambulances. But we continue to hear calls from the opposition, notably saying that we need even more ambulances. We need an expansion of paramedic services in BC. What are your What are your thoughts on that? Is, is our ambulance system up to up to scratch right now, or do you think it needs to be further improved? Well, it's difficult to tell because we've uh, the government has made a number of commitments to uh, increase resources to the ambulance service, and we haven't we haven't been able to experience what that looks like yet, Mike. So what we know is that there was a problem over that July weekend. It would have been multifactorial why we had those problems. Uh, It was a long weekend. It was a hot weekend. um, It was the first weekend of summer. um, And people were uh, coming out of the, uh, you know, from under the the COVID cloud, if you will. Um, inevitably, there would have been more people, absences would have been higher, people would have been booked off on holidays, there would have been a myriad of reasons. But suffice it to say that the government has certainly responded with a recognition that things needed to be fixed. They've said what those fixes are, um, and we have to wait and see whether those are sufficient or not. Uh, On paper, uh, the planners would say that this will work, and then it will be tested when reality hits and and the plan has to be implemented. Okay, we're watching it very closely. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Okay, let's keep talking about this new extreme heat warning system outlined by the provincial government yesterday and the report out today from BC's chief coroner on the heat-related deaths that we saw during the heat dome last year you heard my conversation there with isabel mckenzie the seniors advocate let's check in with shirley bond now liberal mla she's the official opposition health critic i'm pleased to welcome her back shirley thank you for coming on always a pleasure mike what are your thoughts on the warning system announced by the government yesterday and also the coroner's report out on the heat deaths today 
Well, what happened in British Columbia uh, last year was absolutely devastating and tragic. And we have been calling for the expansion of the Alert Ready system for a year now. Uh, as far as we're concerned, it's taken far too long. Um, we're relieved, I'm certainly relieved, to see that there has been some action taken. And the, the government now needs to respond immediately and decisively to accept the recommendations that the coroner's uh, death review panel presented and move forward. Uh, we certainly don't want to see, Mike, this ever happen again in our province. Yeah, so let's talk about some of those recommendations. What are the key ones that you want to see implemented here? Well, I think obviously making sure that people understand the risks. And what happened last year was they didn't. People died because they didn't understand how significant the risk was. There was a gap in providing that information. The death review panel points that out. So we had better sort out how we are going to do a better job of that. Uh, we also need to, uh, when we look at the report, when you look at who lost their life, uh, many vulnerable British Columbians, older British Columbians, many of whom lived alone, who did not have uh, what they needed uh, in terms of, of facing that kind of uh, extreme heat. So the government has to identify uh, who the vulnerable British Columbians are that are most at risk. They've had a year to do that. Um, this is an unbelievable tragedy. We lost over 600 mostly frail, elderly, vulnerable British Columbians. So um, we are going to be watching very carefully this government's response to the recommendations that have been provided. Right. So for a lot of seniors, and, and we know that a lot of the seniors who tragically died in this event last year, many of them were not living in long-term care homes, but they're living in the community. They're living in apartments. They're living in mobile homes. They're living in modular homes. So what do you think needs to be done there? These pe people who are vulnerable situations like that, there should be like a, a registry of people that can be checked on in the event of another emergency? Well, absolutely. We need to be able to identify where these people live and uh, support those people who are at most risk of dying. And that is, you know, we have been uh, we have been calling for the government to do that over the past year. And in fact, that's what the second recommendation is from the death review panel. We need to ensure that vulnerable populations are identified and supported. And there's a variety of ways to do that. But, you know, when we look at, at the tragedy of what happened is that most of the people who died were in homes that didn't have adequate cooling systems. And so, again, yeah. this has implications from an infrastructure perspective, from a policy perspective, and most importantly, from a human perspective as we care for those most vulnerable in our province. Right. Just got 30 seconds left here. Do we have enough paramedics and do we have enough ambulances? The government, again, promising yesterday to expand the system. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, we heard from the uh, ambulance paramedics that a lot had been promised and very little has actually come to fruition. Those are their words, not mine. And we need to make sure that when you call 911 in this province, an ambulance responds. It is up to the government to do more than just talk about taking action. They may need to make sure that it's going to work on the ground, uh, especially during extreme heat events like the one that took place. Right, so the government yesterday said they've had it... They're, they've added 125 new full-time paramedic positions. Have all those people been hired? Well, again, uh, the government is great at making announcements and a lot less uh, interested in the results of those announcements, what is actually happening on the ground. So, Mike, it's going to be, uh, we're going to watch carefully. Uh, we need to see action on the ground, and we'll certainly be right. watching to ensure that this government moves from making announcements to taking the action that's necessary to protect British Columbians. Thanks for your time today. Always appreciate it. Thanks I, so much. Uh, thank